Thanks, TJ. TJ is one of our newest church members, so we're excited to have TJ with us. Um, you notice he always wears red, and so you ought to ask him about that next time you chat with him. If you don't know why he wears red, I'm not going to tell you. I'll let him tell you. Um, we're continuing the sermon series we've called The Secret Life of Jesus, and uh, uh, it's based on uh, Matthew 6 and 7, and we, I've been saying in each of these sermons, Jesus is really inviting us into a secret life with God, and uh, He is saying that part of how we do that is by participating in these means that help us experience that secret life, and those means are spiritual practices. And there are many spiritual practices, and um, Jesus only mentions three here, partly because they were the main three of the first century Jew, and they are giving and praying and fasting. And so we're, we're kind of digging down into at least these three practices, uh, but of course there, there are more. And he spends a lot of time on prayer, and that makes sense. If he's inviting us into a secret life with God, prayer makes sense that it would be an essential part of that. And so we were spending two weeks on that practice. So last week, uh, we talked about what uh, he teaches in verses 5 through 8, which uh, we said he told us, don't pray to impress others. Don't pray like the Gentiles and try to manipulate God like prayer is magic. Uh, but do pray to God as, as if you're talking to a parent, right? And this is what he, what he taught us. And he also taught us uh, some practical things about prayer. And he told us to go into our room and shut the door. And I added to that, and shut off your phone, right? And to, in order to have a secret life with God spiritually, you've got to carve out a secret place physically. Um, otherwise, it's just never going to happen. And we need to be out of the distractions of our lives and have some kind of a secret place, whether that's in the place where you live, or a library, or a park, or it doesn't matter, just some place where you can get away from the distractions and pray to God. And so if we think of it this way, last week was how to pray, and this week is what to pray. Because after he gives that kind of introductory teaching, he then says, pray like this, right? And he gives us what's oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. This seems really significant. I mean, you think about it, if you want to learn how to play basketball, and LeBron James is doing a workshop, and he's saying, I'm going to give you the basics of, of how to be a great basketball player. I mean, you'd, you'd probably show up. You'd want to do that. Or if you wanted to play the cello, and Yo-Yo Ma was going to give a free workshop, and uh, you could come and learn from Yo-Yo Ma how to play the cello, you, 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 you would show up, right? You would want to know, the master, how do you do this? And here we're getting to hear from Jesus the master of prayer. There's no higher expert that we could ever hear from than Jesus himself as he talks about prayer. So, four general categories in this prayer that I think will help us maybe get a sense of the flow of what he's teaching us here. Um, the first is declare who God is. Declare who God is, right? He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, before he even teaches us to address God, he uses the word our, right? He, he, he makes this communal 
which is interesting, right? He just told us to go into our room and shut the door, and now he's teaching us to, to say our Father. And as you look at the in, entire prayer, it's a communal prayer. And I don't think that's because he doesn't think we can use this prayer in our private time of, of praying. I actually think he's, he's teaching us something about the nature of prayer, even private prayer, that we're not praying to a God of our own making. We're standing with all Christians, past, present, and future, as we pray to the one true God. We're praying to the God that Abraham prayed to, that David prayed to, right? That the prophets, that the disciples of Jesus prayed to throughout church history, all the Christians, all the men and women who have prayed to God, we're praying along with them right? We were standing with them in prayer. But then we're also praying with all the believers on the planet, believers in Zambia and in South Korea and uh, in Mill City Church in Massachusetts, who are not here yet because of a snowstorm, um, with Midtown Church just a few blocks over. We're all praying to the same God, our Father, This is not a God that we just made up. It's become kind of a trend in some circles to deconstruct the faith, to kind of go through Christianity and say, I'm going to throw out that part and keep this part. And what you find is you're on a very tiny island worshiping a tribal God who is a God of your own making. If you deconstruct the Christian faith, the historic Christian faith, and try to pray... You, you can't pray this prayer. You can't pray our Father because you're praying to a God of your own making. And so this is a very powerful thing, this opening uh, word of our. We're praying with the, uh, the, the people of God, Old Testament and New, past, present. It's a powerful, powerful way to start. And then we're praying to God as Father. We talked some about this last week. Like, There's a lot of implications of addressing God as Father. This is a relationship of love, of discipline, of provision, of authority, of intimacy. I mean, you can meditate on this a long time. There's so many facets to this reality that we get to pray to the God of the universe and call Him our Dad. Uh, This is also a declaration of our identity. If we're calling God Father, that means we're his child. And so even that declaration tells us who we are, not just who who God is. We're no longer alone and isolated, rejected. We're no longer cowering in guilt or shame and regret. We're a son, we're a daughter of God, the Father. That's just the first two phrases, our first two words of this prayer. So much, so much meaning. And how could Jesus invite us to pray like that? How could he say to his followers, you can pray to God as your father? Well, by the end of Matthew's gospel, we'll see how he can invite us to do that. It's going to be a terrible cost to him, God the Son. As we're going to see him at the end of Matthew on a bloody cross, dying in our place, not just to forgive our sins, but to reconcile us with God. 
that we are no longer His enemies, but now we're His sons and daughters. That is only possible through Christ. And so when Jesus says to His disciples, pray, our Father, He knows He's going to have to go to the cross in order for that prayer to actually be true. Now, not only is He our Father, but He is in heaven, and His name is holy. Uh, Holy means set apart, perfect, even infinite. It's the best word we have to describe God, right? And you can add holy as a qualifier to every other attribute of God, that God's love is set apart, perfect, and infinite, that God's justice is set apart, perfect, infinite. It's holy. Every part of His nature, His goodness is holy goodness. Now, as we have a greater and greater realization of who God is, this holy, heavenly Father, this in and of itself should motivate us to want to pray. Uh, J.I. Packer, who is commenting on this, uh, on, on the Lord's Prayer, says, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of the God that prompts it. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. So as Jesus teaches us to to declare who God is, He knows as we we behold God as the holy, heavenly Father, it's going to motivate us to want to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep praying, and keep moving throughout this prayer. The second part of the prayer is to declare God as the utmost authority, right? Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This seems to logically flow from declaring Him as the heavenly holy Father, that He is king over the universe. He is the utmost authority, that we want to see His rule and His reign established. But what does that mean? What are we praying? What are we really asking for when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done? Now, Christians have had a lot of ideas, especially recently, about what it means for the kingdom of God to come. And I think some of those ideas are not consistent with the Bible. Um, And it kind of depends on what end of the spectrum you find yourself. So more on the conservative side uh, of Christianity, uh, they begin to sometimes think that the kingdom coming is making society moral, that bringing, sort of being the moral police for the world is how we're going to make the kingdom of God come in society, that through the things we boycott or the things we vote for, this will bring the kingdom of God. This uh, was at its height, really in the 80s, when the moral majority was... uh, being declared, and, and, and sort of Christi- Christianity in America was working hard to take power politically, right? And it's the same kind of idea. That we're going to bring the kingdom. We're going to bring the rule and reign of God, and we do that through uh, policy, through legislation, through uh, voting. Now, nothing wrong with the church trying to influence society, right? We are citizens in this country, and we want there to be human flourishing in this country, and God's standards, God's rules, they they are helpful in contributing to human thriving, 
But being the moral police is not the bringing of the kingdom of God. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, more on uh, maybe the liberal side of politics, uh, we have a, a group of Christians that are sometimes thinking the kingdom comes by stopping gun violence or feeding the poor, uh, reforming the legal system. This was at its height, really, in the 60s when you saw what was called the social gospel. And so the idea was, we don't want to talk about all that bloody cross, sin, hell stuff. We just want to talk about how Jesus wanted to feed the poor and reform society. And that this thinking was that the kingdom was coming through these social uh, engagements. And nothing wrong with that. And in fact, that is certainly something that is part of a Christian life and the life of the church, but it's not the kingdom. Feeding the poor, reforming the legal system, this is not bringing the kingdom of God. And it's interesting how these different ways of thinking are, are affecting uh, folks in their 20s. Because the, the moral police have caused many in their 20s to go, I don't even want to consider Christianity. If that's what it is, I don't want to do it. While the reforming of society has often been very attractive to those in their 20s. And they're like, yeah, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up. But again, oftentimes the reform of society is to the exclusion of talking about all that sin and hell and Jesus cross stuff. So if it's neither one of those, what is it? What are we praying for? Your kingdom come, your will be done. I think Matthew tells us in his gospel. Um, and there's really two sides of it. So, so one, one of those things that's being prayed for uh, when we pray for the kingdom to come is gospel ministry to happen on earth. Right? And we, we, we see this in Matthew 4, 23 uh, as we hear of Jesus' ministry being launched, right? And it says, He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This phrase, gospel of the kingdom, is unique to Matthew. And he, he, we see this on the lips of Jesus a couple more times in the gospels, or in the gospel of Matthew. And so we see that the gospel is a message proclaimed. Right? It is a message. Now, it can be demonstrated. And in fact, we even see it demonstrated here as he heals and, and does the things that he does to help people and serve them. But the bringing of the kingdom, that comes with the proclamation of the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. That this Savior King has died for our sins, buried for three days, risen from the dead. And as the ruler over death and sin and hell, this is how the kingdom comes. Right? And this is the kingdom that's being preached here. Now again, demonstrated absolutely in the lives of, 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 of those, through the lives of those who have come to know Christ as their Savior king. By the end of the gospel of Matthew, 
We see Jesus as the reigning king of the universe, right? Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what, Jesus? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, he doesn't say kingdom of heaven there, but when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that is some kingdom talk. And so he's saying that the kingdom of heaven has broken in through the Savior King Jesus. And now, how will that kingdom go forward? How will his kingdom come? How will his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, in the now, it's through disciple making. It's through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, the gospel to others. And as they receive that by faith, they repent of their sin, and they turn toward their king in absolute submission to him. Every time someone does this, every time you and I, we grow in our submission to our king Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is coming down. And for us as as a church, this is important prayer. We want to see this happen. We want to see more and more people hearing the gospel, responding in faith, following Jesus as his disciples, both in the neighborhood around here. We want to see that happening on these campuses around here. And as each person responds in faith like that, the kingdom comes. So as we're praying as a church, your kingdom come. Now again, will that also result in society being better and the campus being better? And absolutely, absolutely. There will be a demonstration of that reality, that gospel reality. But what brings the kingdom is the gospel. Um, It also is tied to Jesus' second coming. So there's a now to this prayer and there's a not yet. So we see this uh, also in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus says, uh, says this in Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he's describing this son of man. This is uh, from the book of Daniel, actually, this sort of divine messianic king figure who's bringing judgment to the, uh, to the earth. And he's saying, he's it, right? And so there's a sense in which the kingdom is now. This is the di- go make disciples of all nations. There's also a sense in which the kingdom is not yet. Jesus is going to come and he's going to wrap this thing up. And he's going to, in his justice, bring restorative justice, make things right that have been unjust. He's also going to bring retributive justice. He's going to judge evil, and evil is going to get its due. And so as we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying on both of those planes. We're praying, praying, God, bring your kingdom now in the lives of of my friends, in the lives of my family, in the the lives of my neighbors, in the lives of my coworkers. Lord, bring bring it into the city. Bring it on the University of Texas campus. Lord, bring it to the nations, right? Through discipleship, through the gospel proclamation. And then also praying, come wrap this thing up. This life is hard. 
there are things about this world that are a wreck. God, come and make it right. So there's a longing there in that prayer as well for the end of all days. And because we're praying to our, our Papa, who's also the, the king of the universe, we can long for it. We can long for it. We're not going to grieve and mourn when we see the Son of Man come. We're going to cheer if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ. And so we can pray with confidence, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, those are big, those are really big ideas, right? Who God is and His rule and reign. And then it's a little bit of whiplash as we enter the next phase, which is a declaring of our physical neediness. It's, it's, it's quite a, a, a transition, right? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, human beings, we're an odd creation because we are part physical and part spiritual. Nothing else in the creation is like that. Uh, angels are, are a creation. They're spiritual. They don't need food. We do. But on the other hand, we are spiritual. Right? We have a soul. And so we get the opportunity to not only have physical needs, but to ask in a spiritual relationship with God for those needs to be met. The birds have physical needs, but they don't have to ask the Father, right? Jesus even mentions this in Matthew 6, later in the chapter. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He depicts God, the heavenly Holy Father, feeding the birds, making sure they're fed. I'm pretty sure those little birds that we hear tweeting out there, they're not praying to God, please give me some, you know, food. They're, they're just physical. They're not spiritual. But we have the opportunity to pray in our spiritual relationship to the Father for our physical needs to be met. Now, you may say, I don't really need to ask for my physical needs to be met. I mean, I, I know where my food's coming from, you know, uh, this week or maybe this month or maybe you've got a, you know, your, your, your job contract is for the next three years or you're, you've got a scholarship and you're like, I'm good. Like, I don't really need to pray for daily bread. That definitely was not the case for the original hearers. Right? The first century, um, Jews in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire, life was very, very unstable, partly because they were agrarian, and they needed the crops to come in or the herd to have babies, and if that didn't work out, if there was a pestilence or a, a famine or, you know, things, they, they didn't work out. They didn't have food. And so when he said, pray for daily bread, they knew exactly what he was talking about because they were living hand to mouth. Um, but, the, but to be honest, we are too. We just don't know it. We are too. And there's moments in your life where you realize it, I think, most, most, for most Christians. There's these moments, and you go, oh, I really am dependent on God. When we moved to, to Massachusetts in 99 to start a church, we had like a five-year funding plan that was like a trickle-down thing. And, you know, we had two kids, and, and we showed up in Massachusetts, and three months in, I get a phone call, and they say, ah, sorry, but some things fell through. We're only going to fund you for 11 months. I'm like, ah, what? And so it was like, I don't know how we're going to do it. God, help, help. We need, we need funds. We need money. 
Um, and within about six months after letting some people know, hey, this is where we're at and this is the needs that we have, we had like six months of salary in the bank. And it was one of those moments where the Lord is like, I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of your provision. Then when we left Massachusetts and we were like, had, to, had a few things out that we were like, maybe we'll go this way or that way. And, and um, literally as we're driving here to spend just two months in Austin, haha, um, I'm on the phone with one of those opportunities and I'm like saying no to it because it's not a really good fit. And I look at Mel and she's like looking at me and we're like, I don't, what are we going to do? I don't know. Um, then the, the other thing that we had kind of dried up too, and then we're just praying. And then we were back in that mode again, like daily bread, like what do we do, God? And so there's, there's these moments where he reminds us, no, we're, we're dependent on him. And those are good moments. They're not fun and they're scary. But this is what's real. This is what's true. And honestly, I've had a lot more job security. I mean, I went up to plant a church with a bunch of college students in Massachusetts. I had more job security than, honestly, most of my friends that were in the professional world. They were getting laid off and having to get new jobs and and it was just reminder after reminder, God saying, oh, I got you. I got you. You can depend on me for your physical well-being. This pray for daily bread was certainly something that was really ingrained into the life of the first century Jew, right? And partly because of what they experienced in the wilderness. When they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, they couldn't grow anything. They couldn't raise any animals. They had no way of bringing food uh, out of the ground, right? And, and so what God did was provide manna for them. And it was built in, the system was built in by God to only be one day at a time. And it was built in so much so that if they tried to keep two or three days in their, in their house, the next day they would wake up and it would be all stinky and maggot infested and they couldn't keep more than a, they couldn't keep any, one day at a time. And so this idea of God is providing daily bread, I mean, it was ingrained in the people, or so you would think. Um, now, as they're about to go into the promised land and they're going to get instant cities and instant vineyards and instant, all kinds of just instant stuff, right? Um, the... Um, Moses is given the, the Sermon of Deuteronomy and just tell, getting him ready to go in from daily manna to actually having jobs and, and working um, with vineyards and, and fields. And this is what he says. This is from Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So I think that's a good word for us. If we're able to produce wealth through a job, uh, through investments, through whatever, whatever it is we're doing to, to, to get wealth, God is giving us the power to do that. And so we may not be living hand to mouth, but we are absolutely dependent on God for our physical needs. And... This definitely applies to any physical need, right? Not just food, but could be tuition for next semester. It could be cars broken down. I don't know how we're going to pay for the, for the repair. It could be whatever, college education for a child. It could be some big, big stuff. And God can handle daily bread. He can handle college tuition. He, he can do it all. 
and, uh, but he, and he cares about our material needs. Now, the last part is declaring our spiritual neediness. I don't know if you're catching on to this. We're a pretty needy bunch. We've got a lot of needs. We've got material needs. We've got spiritual needs. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we are both physical and spiritual, and this is acknowledged in this prayer. And so verse 12, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there's a lot of spiritual needs that Jesus could have put in here, and you can, we can certainly pray for those needs. But I think it's important to pay attention to what He does put in this prayer. He must think these needs are really important. So there's four things in here, at least. Uh, one is the, the spiritual need for forgiveness. We need forgiveness from sin. Um, Jesus seems to expect that his followers are going to sin from time to time. Right? So this is, this is in this prayer that he teaches his followers uh, to pray. And he thinks it's a big deal. He thinks it's a big deal. And our tendency sometimes would be, ah, you know, I'm only human. I mean, come on, give me a break. You know, of course I'm going to make mistakes, that kind of thing. Jesus is like, no, this is, this is a big deal. Partly how we know he thinks this is a big deal because he uses the word forgiveness. And forgiveness is a monetary term. And it means that I owe a debt that I cannot pay. And I need for it to be forgiven. This is what he's saying. He's saying that sin produces a debt that we owe to God. And it needs to be forgiven. It requires a payment. And, um, you know, there's so much talk about debt forgiveness right now. There's a trillion dollars in student debt right now that might get forgiven. We don't know. And who knows? And you may be on one side or the other on that topic. Um, but one thing is for sure, if it does get forgiven, someone will absorb the cost. Debts don't get forgiven unless the cost is absorbed. And so when Jesus is teaching us to pray for the forgiveness of our sin, he knows the cost must be absorbed for that sin. And that's what he's going to be doing at the end of the Gospel of Matthew on that cross. He's going to be absorbing the cost of our sin. And so when he says, forgive us our sins, that's not a, just a flippant throwaway. Like, oh, God, he just kind of waves a magic wand. No, he knows he's going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to go to the cross for us to call God our Father. He's going to have to go to the cross for us to be able to say, forgive us of our sins. He will absorb the cost. He even talks about it this way in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 20, verse 28 even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so He, he knows He's going to have to give His life to absorb the cost. Now, He also mentions a, a second spiritual need, and that is that we would forgive others as well. Um, this seems to be on His mind because He, after the prayer, then He goes ahead and says some more comments about it right? The topic. Verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A little confusing there, right? Is Jesus saying that God will only forgive me if I forgive others, and then I can kind of use that as a token to pay him, and then he will say, oh, okay, I mean, you forgave your person that, you know, your friend that hurts you, so I guess I'll forgive you as well. I think we, if, we, if we know anything about the rest of the Bible, even the rest of the book of Matthew, we know that's not what he's saying. 
uh, that it's some sort of I earn my forgiveness by forgiving others. Uh, we see this in Matthew. Here's a couple of places where this is not the case. Uh, Matthew 9, 2. Uh, this is when the, the friends are bringing a, a, a paralytic that uh, is in need of healing. And 9, 2 says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And that's all he, he, he doesn't say, now, my son, if you will forgive a bunch of people that have hurt you, I'll forgive you. That's not what he says. He just says, your sins are forgiven. And that's in the Gospel of Matthew. By the end of the book, we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, you hear me say this every week, uh, Matthew 26, 27, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's a strong understanding that he's going to pay with his life, and that is going to pay for our sins. And that we, in turn, will be forgiven of the debt that we owe. So, what is Jesus saying when he says, if you don't forgive, my Father won't forgive you? Well, there's a, a, a really masterful parable in Matthew chapter 18 that I think gets at the meaning of what Jesus is saying here in the Lord's Prayer. Um, the story is uh, an answer to a question that Peter asks Jesus. Peter says, how many times should I have to forgive this person over here that's hurt me? And Peter says, maybe seven times. It's a good biblical number, you know, seven, number of completeness. I think Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, like, yeah. That, that's a lot of forgiveness. And Jesus is like, mm, no, I'm thinking seven times 70. And then Peter's like, 490 times. Oh my gosh, you know, that's a lot. But I'll start checking the list, you know, 485. And, and then Jesus, but then Jesus tells a story to really answer his question. And the story is that uh, a servant, we'll call him servant number one, owed 10,000 talents to the king. Now, 10,000 talents would have been about 200,000 workdays worth of money. So let's say he's making 15 bucks an hour. He owes the king $6.2 billion. So that's servant number one's issue. And there is no way at $15 an hour he's going to pay back $6.2 billion. So all he can do is beg. And he begs. And the king says, your debt is forgiven. So absorbs the cost, whatever that, you know, however that looked like for the king. But the king's like, you're free. You're forgiven. No payment plan. No pay half of it. No uh, bankruptcy. You know, you're just, you're forgiven. And so then servant number one leaves the king and sees servant number two. And servant number two owes him 100 denarii. And at a $15 an hour, a denarii is like a... Um, well, at about $15 an hour, that would be uh, about $12,000, okay? And these are, these are the, the real terms in, in this parable. And so servant number one sees servant number two and says, you owe me $12,000. And servant number two says, I'll pay it back. Please just give me a payment plan. And he begs. And servant number one's like, forget it, man. I'm putting you in jail. You're in debtor's prison. And so then the king finds out about servant number one's behavior, and the king uh, takes him back and puts him in the prison. And 
Matthew 18, 35 is Jesus' kind of punchline to this parable. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, it's a similar kind of verbiage that we just read in Matthew 6. And what it seems to indicate is that those who have been forgiven will forgive others. That those who have been forgiven an infinite debt against an infinite God who has paid that infinite debt with the infinite uh, treasure of His own Son's life, if we understand that and we receive that, we will then give forgiveness to lesser debts. We will forgive others as we have been forgiven, especially if there are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, think about what we're praying here. We're praying that our, forgive us our debts. Well, as we pray that, we're not just praying for, 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 for these debts. We're praying for the debts. We're saying we want everyone in our brothers and sisters to, to be forgiven their debts, even if their, their debt is something they've done to me. I'm praying, God, would you forgive them for what they did to me? The heart of that towards God is, is so, so different than the simple human heart. Like This is a transformed human being that would be praying to God, forgive me as I am forgiving those who I'm also praying you would forgive. Right? And so it is, uh, seems that Matthew 18 parable seems to give us the gist of what Jesus is getting at there. Um, third spiritual need is the fighting of temptation. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. This is also a little odd, right? We're asking God not to tempt us? Now, we know from other Scripture that is not what we're asking. Um, James 1 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Okay, that seems pretty, pretty clear. And then he goes on, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. It's a very vivid description of the nature of temptation. Um, James lets us know it didn't start with God tempting us. It starts with our desire, our sinful desire. And he's saying, literally, that our sinful desire is the mother of all sin. <laughs> it is the mother, right? It gives birth to sin. Now, I have no desire to eat sushi. None. Nothing against those of you that love sushi. I'm glad that you do. I do not desire. I was looking up sushi places because I don't even know where they are. I'm driving past them. I realize I'm driving past some. I don't even know they exist. It is not a temptation for me to go in to a sushi place and eat sushi. Now, torchies, that's different. I do have a desire to eat torchies. I love their Crossroads taco. Man, so good. And the chips and queso, mm. So I am tempted. But that temptation starts with my desire. And I'm not saying a desire for Mexican food is a bad thing. It's not. It's a good, it's a good thing until it's not. Um, and that desire for sin is the mother of any kind of a temptation and a mother of any kind of sin, right? It gives birth to sin, which gives birth to destruction, to death, if that sin is indulged in again and again and again. And so we're asking, 
God, would you assist me with your grace, with your power in saying no to my sinful desire? Lead me not into temptation. Deal with this stuff that's in me, God, so that my desire does not give birth to sin and give birth to death. The the fourth spiritual need here is the deliverance from evil. Um, In this prayer, Jesus is having us acknowledge that there's an enemy within and there's an enemy without. It's inward and it's outward, right? Enemy within is this temptation that springs from our sinful desires, but there's also evil. And some manuscripts say evil one, deliver us from the evil one. And so I think it can be both and, right? It can, it can be the evil of the world system, um, the, the, the world that's sort of set up against God and His ways, but also against the evil one, a Satan himself. And it's an acknowledgement that we are in a world at war. There's a war going on. And it's a war within ourselves, and it's a war outside of ourselves as well. You see Jesus praying like this in His prayer in John 17. He prays for His disciples. He says, Uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So he's like, I'm not asking you to extract them, God, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's acknowledging as he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and send his Holy Spirit, that his disciples are going to be in a combat zone, spiritual combat zone. And he's asking, God, would you protect them from the evil one? And I think it would be appropriate to say protect protect us from the evil of this world. So both the enemy within and the enemy without. And so we are needing help. We're needing assistance from God to withstand these temptations. The temptation uh, to be lazy. Like, help me, God. Help me overcome my desire to be lazy. Help me to overcome the the, the ways of thinking in this world that might contribute to that temptation. Help me to overcome what kind of demonic spiritual forces that may be at play in my life as I go against this temptation. God, help me. Help me to to not give in to the, the temptation of destructive anger. God, help me. Help assist both in me and out here. Right? Help me to, to, to not be tempted by, uh, un, to be unforgiving or to be bitter or, or to be apathetic or, or to participate in my mind or in my body in uh, ways that are inconsistent with your standards, God, with your truth. God, help me. Um, help me not to give in to chemical dependencies. God, help me not to give in to, to, to discontentment as I look at all the advertising and all the things I don't have. And God, help me inside and out to resist the temptation to give in to these things. And certainly all these temptations stemming, again, from uh, my own desires within me and my lack of belief that God is even good. God, help me. Help me believe that you're good. God, help me not to bow down to these worthless idols of other, other things that I seek, what only you can give me, God. And so this, lead us not into temptation. This is a deep prayer of, of help me to overcome these things that are inside of me and are outside of me. Um, so think about those four movements, right? Declaring who God is. Declaring He's the utmost authority. Declaring our physical neediness. 
declaring our spiritual neediness. It's a great, very helpful framework, right? So as Christians, uh, those of you that are, are Christ followers, this, this gives you some kind of framework for your prayer life. And I think it's fine to say the prayer as is, but I also think it's helpful to use those phrases in this prayer as prompts. And when you get into your time of prayer and you're like, I just don't know what to pray for, or you find yourself praying for the same thing all the time. This, God, help me to feel better. God, help me find a friend. You know, help, help me pay my next tuition payment. What, whatever the thing is, we just get in these little ruts. And those things are not bad to pray for. But I think this prayer will, will open up the possibilities in terms of how to pray to God, acknowledging who He is, acknowledging His rule and reign, then bringing physical needs. Some of you need to hear the bring physical needs. You don't think God cares about your physical needs. You're so super spiritual that you won't go to Him with a, a pain in your back or some anxiety or whatever. And He's just like, bring it to Him. He cares about it. Others of you are so focused on physical needs, you never get around to spiritual needs. You're just like, I, I need this, this, and this, 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 and, and then I'll have a really awesome life here on earth, and that's what I want more than anything else. And this prayer is saying, mm, no, you're in a world at war, okay? So, yes, pray for physical needs, but be aware of the spiritual battle that you're in, and God is at the ready to assist you in overcoming temptation, overcoming your own sinful desires. For some of you, you've not yet put your faith in Christ, perhaps. You really can't pray this prayer until you've done that. Like John 1, uh, verse 12, 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's an invitation to trust in, believe in, rely on Jesus. Yet to those who believe in Jesus... Not just his person, but his work, what he has done on the cross. It's through that that we can now be reconciled to the Father. So if you've not yet done that, I want to encourage you to do that, to trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. He has paid your debt, absolutely, and he's offering not only forgiveness, but reconciliation with God. This is the only way to be able to cry out to God, Father, is through faith in Christ. This prayer can only be true if what Christ has done for us on the cross is true. Okay. Um, this is what we are reminded of every time we come to this table. And I, I was really struck uh, by this reality as I read this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote the book Cost of Discipleship and some other books as well, but this comes from Cost of Discipleship. And he says this about the Lord's Prayer. He says, Christ's disciples are renewed in their assurance that the kingdom is God's by their fellowship in Jesus Christ, on whom depends the fulfillment of all their prayers. It is through Christ. That's what depends the fulfillment of all our prayers. Then he goes on to comment about the Lord's Prayer. In Him, God's name is hallowed. So in Jesus, God's name is hallowed. His kingdom comes and His will is done. For His sake, the disciples are preserved in body and receive forgiveness of sin. In His, as in Jesus' strength, they are preserved in all times of temptation. 
In His, as in Jesus, His power, they are delivered and brought to eternal life. His, as in Jesus, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. In unity of the Father, that is the assurance the disciples have. The reason that this prayer is not just some little poem that we like to think about and gives us little warm fuzzies is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That prayer is absolutely certain. We can pray what's in that prayer because of what Christ did and what he uh, caused us to remember when he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knew that in order for that prayer to be true, that he taught them in Matthew 6, that by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he was going to have to have his body broken. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He knew he was going to have to go to the cross and pour out his blood in order to pay the debt that we owed, in order for that prayer to be true. And he did it. And we remember that today as we take this bread and take this cup, and that not only our sins are forgiven, but we can cry out to God as our Father. That is good news. That is good news. And so if you are a Christ follower, you are a son, a daughter of God through faith in Christ, we want to encourage you to be a part of uh, the taking of the bread and the cup. Um, if you're not yet a Christian, we want to encourage you to take Christ this morning by faith. Um, but if you're not ready, if you're exploring, we're really glad you're here and I uh, want to encourage you to, to remain in your seat during this time, to think about what you've heard, and then follow up with a conversation, either with someone here or with myself, um, because this is the most important thing you could ever consider. So I'm going to pray, and then when uh, you're ready, you can come down and take the bread and the cup. Father, We acknowledge we could not even say that if it wasn't for you sending your son to die in our place and pay our debt. Lord, we, we couldn't pray your kingdom come, your will be done if it wasn't for what Christ did on the cross to rule and reign over sin, death, and hell. God, we, we couldn't cry out to you even for our physical needs, our daily needs, but we can today, God, because of what... Christ has done for us, God. We couldn't pray for our uh, spiritual needs, but now we can. And so we're so grateful for this relationship that we have with you that was bought and paid for with your life. And we pray as we take this cup and, and, and take the bread, Lord, that it would remind us, remind us of who you are as we pray, our Father, that we would join with uh, Christians throughout the ages and throughout the nations this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.